knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. The self-imposed tax that the hunters and our anglers pay and, you know, bless them because they truly are the advocates when it comes to conservation. Um, and so they're, they're putting their money where their mouth is. Um, and because of the Pittman-Robertson and Neil Johnson Act, uh, they're able, their, their activities fund um, state fish and wildlife um, and game agencies for them to be able to do their conservation work. Um, and it really is hoping to um, sustain our wildlife and was really um, excited this year and you'll see this going forward on our duck stamp. Um, we are honoring um, our hunters um, and giving them that acknowledgement that when it comes to conservation, they are truly the ones that um, are allowing um, us to be able to be stewards for everyone else, even for the species that aren't hunted. Good afternoon. This is Aurelia Skipwith, Director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast today. We've got a great guest, the U.S. Director of the Fish and Wildlife Service is here with us today, Director Aurelia Skipwith. She has a very interesting story of being uh, introduced to the outdoors as a young lady. She is a, um, a city girl that learned all about the outdoors through her family, like most of us, and a uh, very smart individual. She has a degree in biology, molecular biology, I think, and also a law degree. She um, was appointed as the director of the Fish and Wildlife by President Trump, and she has done a really good job to expand access for hunting and fishing in her term so far. Over 4 million acres opened for hunting and fishing through the Fish and Wildlife Service. She's going to tell us all about that, all about what the future plans are, and all about how hunters and fishermen can work together with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to continue to protect our access, to continue to expand our access, and also to help with the conservation of all the species that we love so much. So with no further ado, 
director Aurelia Skipwith. Since the first episode, we've had a dedicated email address because I want to get to know you. I want to hear from you. Your suggestions have made some of the best shows we've ever made because you've suggested amazing guests that maybe I didn't know before. I look them up, I find them, and you know what? You're exactly right. They made fantastic podcast guests. I'd like to find a way to communicate with you even better. I've looked into private Facebook groups. I've looked into all different kinds of things. I think I found the best way that we can communicate, that you can give me those questions, those suggestions, and that is through text. You can simply text me, 305-930-7346. Yep, you'll reach me, and I will text you back. And that is a place where we can open a conversation. You can tell me why you think this guy is a great or girl is a great podcast guest. Um, and we can carry on a, a short conversation there. That is the best way. I can also give you um, information, news on when new shows are dropping, discounts that are exclusive to the podcast audience. Man, this thing seems to be the, the way to go. So that is 305-930-7346. Shoot me a text. See what happens. I will text you back. Director Skipwith, how are you this afternoon? I'm, I'm really good. It's, it's been a, another fantastic day here at the service. Um, and even more special being able to talk to the American public about what we do here at the service. So it's truly an honor to be here. So thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you on. Um, it, it's really, you have a very cool story. I, I would like to know more about your story. I've been doing a little digging in, but it, it all starts with an introduction to the outdoors, really, for you to have a career here. I would think that you would you would have to be uh, interested in the outdoors. And I would imagine as most people, that interest in the outdoors probably started with someone introducing you to hunting or fishing at a young age and then kind of developing from there. Is that, that's the story for most sportsmen. Is that your story? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much my story. Um, and it starts with family. So I'm born and raised in Indianapolis. So I'm a city girl. Uh, but my family hails from rural Mississippi. So during the summers, that's where um, where my mom, my sister, my father, we would go down and um, spend time with my grandpa, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles. They were all there in, in Mississippi. So my grandpa had, a, had his garden. He had his hound dogs and he had his pig farm. So he would always catch me outside hanging out with grandpa helping him with, you know, it was duties for him, but for me, it was, it was just a lot of fun. Um, and it makes it that much more special when you're doing it with family, um, being outdoors with family. So that really made a lasting impression and fishing. Um, I have this story when I was like five years old and, um, my uncle Joe, I'm called him uncle Joe, but he was like my great uncle. And um, we went to um, the state park is about, you know, 30 or so minutes from Indianapolis. And he took the whole family. And at the end of the day, he was like, Aurelia, he would actually call me Riwi because <laughs> that was my nickname. And I'd be like, yes, yes, Uncle Joe. He's like, you caught the biggest fish. And I looked at him and I was like, I'm the only one who caught a fish. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's those kind of memories that, you know, you can look back years later um, 
and they're so impressionable, but you're having fun. Um, and so that's what I want the next generation to have too, um, because it's those experiences at a young age that introduces you to conservation. Um, and growing up, you know, it wasn't, we didn't call it conservation. It was just, it was a way of life. Like that's just what you did. Um, and now it's, you know, go out conservation. It's really about being stewards of the land. Mm -hmm. um, and if you take care of the land, they'll take care of you. Um, it's about taking care of the wildlife. I'm here at the service. You know, we're, we're the stewards for the American people. This is their resources. Um, so um, knowing that that's what our responsibility is, um, it's just that much more impactful knowing that the decisions that we make um, truly have that um, long-lasting um, impact as well as tradition for a lot of folks. Um, so yeah, my I started in this field as you know young and impressionable, and it's lasted with me this long. And it's one of those things that I'll I'll always have it's a creation appreciation for um, nature and and what God has created for us. Yeah. So from that from that early introduction to the outdoors, did that did that have a an impact on what you chose to study and what you were interested in in school? Yeah. So. I uh, studied biology, so I got my bachelor's in biology. I got my master's in molecular genetics in the animal sciences department at Purdue University. Um, I worked for several years before going and getting my law degree. Um, so I always enjoyed wildlife, outdoors. Um, that's really where my niche was, so that's what I ended up what I ended up studying. Um, and then when it came to the law, that was, that was um, from experiences and working in a field and you realize that there's a piece that's missing mm. and knowing that if I really want to make a difference and be the best that I can be, then I need to make a, you know, figure out how to fix a problem. And so um, I was working, um, you know, at an agriculture company and found out that if you were to take that same product that you had here in the U.S. that you were using for years and you would take it to another country, that you could go to jail. Hmm. So it was about even if you have the best science in the world proven um, and you have laws and regulations that prevent you from using that science, then what good is that science? So that's why I went back um, and got my law degree and practice because it really is that combination of putting those two together and realizing that you need the laws and in order to facilitate the use of that science for the for better management practices. Um, Etc. Wow, that's interesting. So, when you go back to school to to law school, did you like what would have been like when you couple those two things together? Like you're talking about molecular biology and and your biology, and then you couple it together with the law. Certainly, I mean, I would imagine that certainly being director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wasn't like 
maybe the goal. There would be a career path and maybe this would have been one of the possible options. But when you're looking at that and you're coupling those together and then you take a significant portion of your life and 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 devote it to to law school, what did you think if it wasn't the the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, what would have been other things that you could have done with that? You know, there's there's so many possibilities and that's what I like about the law and that's what I like about science. There's a lot of um, transfer knowledge that can go into specific niches. And at least when you're looking at law, it's about how do you think about things? How do you evaluate things? So, you know, there's, there's a whole world of possibilities that, you know, if I didn't end up here at the service, it was still figuring out a way of making sure that, you know, what policies we put into place for wildlife when it comes to management of our land so that they're productive for multiple uses. Um, how do we make that work for all of the interested stakeholders? Um, and so kind of that's the foundation that I have for myself, you know, and that can fit in multiple areas, either going to, um, you know, different organizations or careers or companies, but it has been an honor to um, serve in this administration, serve for President Trump, um, and under the leadership of Secretary Bernhardt. And it's really shown me um, that being in the Fish and Wildlife Service, that you have such an impact on so many people um, in a variety of ways that um, is sometimes um, really understated. Um, and so thinking about a lot of things that we've done this past year, um, they're absolutely historic. Um, the amount of lands that we've opened for hunting and fishing. Um, and when you look at those, I mean, that's all based on science. You're looking at the regulations. How do you do it safely so you still have so you have sustainable populations? Right. Well, that's one, of the, that's one of the main things that I wanted to talk to you about today. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We have a little bit of a delay on the, uh, on the zoom here, but, um, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I do want to talk to you about access and, and it, it is this figure correct? 2.3 million acres were opened in the since, is that correct? This year. Okay. So 2.3 million acres open to hunting and fishing. So that is historic and that is, is really amazing. So can you kind of describe that? I mean, if people see that figure like, okay, 2.3 million acres, how does that affect me and where did that land come from and what was that land being used for previously that now it's open to the public to to hunt? I'm really interested in that. Yeah, so um, President Trump's administration has been focused on public access and because it's, it's the people's land. So how do we make that available? Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, we have 95 million land acres. We have over 700 million water acres. Um, and so when you look at our lands um, between our National Wildlife Refuge System, and then we also have our National Fish Hatcheries, um, these, we didn't have opportunities open. So we've been directed by the president. Um, the secretary said, hey, get it done. And I really like that aspect of you get it done. Um, and so they, they weren't there. So this really provided us that chance to say, okay, what, what species are there that 
um, we could hunt that um, the, the populations allow us to do that. We've done the environmental assessment to say, yes, you can do that. Um, so that was looking at, okay, species that we haven't um, hunted before. So that's an opportunity. When you go and you look at the lands, um, why weren't those lands open before? Because we, we could do that. Um, another piece that was helpful in that as well as we worked with the states. And so when you look at providing access, you can have the lands there, but if people aren't able to decipher through what the regulation says, that becomes a hindrance. Right. And the goal is, how do we make this more feasible, efficient, and streamlined? So we looked at what the state's um, regulations were and seeing how we could align more with those. So we actually were able to reduce um, our regulations by over 5,000 because they were either duplicative of what the states had or um, they were inconsistent with what the states had. Um, so this really was um, a comprehensive approach of we have the acres, um, we can do it in a safe manner, safe and responsible manner. So let's provide those opportunities for people to take part of their American heritage, which is hunting and fishing um, and say, hey, we're open for business. Wow. That's really, that's really awesome. So 2.3 million acres. Now of the 95 million acres, just so that the audience is clear and, and understands what we're talking about here, those 95 million acres that you have kind of under your control at the, at the service, is that um, national forest land, BLM land? What, what would, would people know those 95 million acres as? So they would know those 95 million acres as a national wildlife refuge. Okay. So the Fish and Wildlife Service is its um, is an independent federal agency under the Department of the Interior. Um, so we're a land ma management agency. We've been around for about a hundred and fifty years. Um, so we have, and we're the the longest um, existing. Um, conservation agency that there is here in the U.S. Um, so we do have that rich history um, of management. And one of the great things is when you look at a refuge or a hatcheries, it's like a living museum. There are actually lands that you go on to do stuff on, like hunt, fish, bird watch, bike, um, and you know, or if you want to stand and like watch nature happen around you, you can do that as well. Uh, but you know, some of those other other lands don't have those opportunities right. that the Fish and Wildlife Service has. Yeah, interesting. I love that. Um, so the uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is that's that's you know great coming from this administration that 2.3 million acres were was that was kind of uh, passed from the top down, like make this happen. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about is like how a private citizen that is interested in hunting and fishing and certainly interested in in maintaining and protecting and expanding the right to hunt and fish on public lands. How can how can a public citizen um, do that? I mean, should they be part of of certain uh, conservation groups or is there something that that we can do as private citizens to ensure 
that we are able to continue to expand access and continue to protect the access that we have now? Now, that is an absolute, that's a great question. Um, and I also want to highlight too that this year it was 2.3 million acres. But since President Trump has come in, if, um, ex, you know, we've continually expand, expanded that. So um, in total, since 2017, um, we've opened four, over 4 million acres. Wow. Um, so um, it's, it's, you know, each year it's, we, we put out a proposed rule of the areas that we are opening or we're proposing to open. And it's part of a public comment process. Um, that's part of the transparency that we have um, here at the Fish and Wildlife Service and in federal government. And so when that proposed rule goes out, that's when we're looking for the feedback, the good and the bad from the public saying, hey, leave this, leave this open where it's at, or no, maybe, you know, we probably shouldn't open that area. It's it's too close to X, Y, and Z. Um, so that's part of hearing from the public, the public weighing in. Um, and then always just going to our website. Um, and then there you can look up state by state um, where our refuges are, where our national fish hatcheries are as well. Um, and then we also have um, a really cool map that we've put up where it shows the areas that have been um, expanded and open for hunting and fishing. So we're really trying to make it um, as user-friendly as possible so people can uh, take part in these um, opportunities that we, you know, that we're providing for, for the public. Mm -hmm. And then as we move forward, um, how about uh, the question about like being involved in the conservation groups? Is that helping to to protect our access here as well as 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 other public access? In your opinion, um, I you know it's always helpful to um, be part of organizations that align with with where your um, principles are. Um, so I I think it's. You know, it's beneficial if you find a conservation organization that aligns with that. And, you know, and some of them are really good and sophisticated and can put comments together and send in. Um, but then also, you know, we're, we're just as responsive to um, a, a citizen who reaches out to us via email. Um, and, and we love to hear from the public, either if it's a conservation organization or just you know, a single individual person. Um, our job as, as, a, as a federal agency is we serve the American people. We serve the public. Um, and so we need to be responsive regardless of um, where, where you're at, either with the group or, or, or alone. But gotcha. it's always great to be in a group. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting, but as a private citizen, it's nice to know that that your voice is heard, whether you're a part of a group that you generally donate to or pay for, or you can send an email and your your voice is as important as someone else's that is in a is in a big group. Obviously, a big group has um, uh, money, finances, sometimes lobbyists, all kinds of things that can help to further their agendas, but a private citizen has has a voice as well. Um, so when you're when you're opening yourself up to to public comment like that, 
It's interesting. Most of the people that listen to this podcast know and and realize and understand that hunters and fishermen not only um, are the ones that are probably the most interested in a lot of these lands and protection of the lands, but also financially responsible for a, a tremendous amount of the funding that goes into conservation through a self-imposed tax on on the uh, on the equipment that we that we buy and purchase and and that all goes back into it how how does anti-hunting uh comments how how does that kind of play into the planning of this i mean you're you're based in science that's one of the things that you talk about so is there a is there an education program for people that just don't understand hunting they don't understand why anyone would need to hunt or why it's important is is that a part of what you do at all an education program yeah um so i'm laughing a little bit on the inside here (laughs) (laughs) because you'll you'll you always have a group of folks that are just going to be like no um so that that always that's always going to be there um and that's just kind of like with with any issue um, and then you have the other folks that are kind of like, okay, well, tell me a little bit more about it. Help educate me. Um, and that's really powerful. And then you have this other group where, you know, they're all in, they understand it. Um, um, they, they're well-versed. And I'm going to go through each of the groups really quickly, but I want to start with the group that you mentioned about uh, the self-imposed tax that the hunters and our anglers pay. and you know, bless them because they truly are the advocates when it comes to conservation. Um, and so they're they're putting their money where their mouth is. Um, and because of the Pittman-Robertson and Neil Johnson Act, uh, they're able, their, their activities fund um, state fish and wildlife um, and game agencies for them to be able to do their conservation work. Um, and it really is, hoping to um, sustain our wildlife and was really um, excited this year. And you'll see this going forward on our duck stamp. Um, We are honoring um, our hunters um, and giving them that acknowledgement that when it comes to conservation, they are truly the ones that um, are allowing um, us to be able to be stewards for everyone else, even for the species that aren't hunted. So having that hunting um, theme of having um, an accessory um, on the duck stamp is to give them that um, acknowledgement for everything that they do for conservation. And then you have um, the edu- the the people that are in the middle. Um, and some of these are you know, folks that, you know, wonder or question, or maybe they're just new to what is conservation, what is new to hunting. And there's a lot of programs that are out there. Um, and the Fish and Wildlife Service, working with state um, fish and game, uh, there's what you have, the R3, which is um, retain, recruit, um, reactivate. Um, and educating um, from all ages, especially starting with youth. Um, and there's a lot of organizations that are out there um, starting at young ages and um, either with having youth hunts. Um, we also do veteran hunts. hunts um, you'll see young adults 
how to how to um, give that background um, and not only just the education piece, but going out there and showing this is how you can hunt and you can do it safely mm-hmm. or or fish. Um, so I'll go out and I'll participate in in multiple events um, to help to help um, facilitate and get more people involved. And so there's a lot of programs that are out there for for education on you know the benefits of hunting, how you can do it. Um, and then the last group is, you know, they'll submit comments just like everyone else. Um, and when we look at our comments, it's the substantive comments. It's the comments that you have based your your comment on um, science or you presented some proposal. It's not just, no, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't help give us um, any information on how to evaluate that. So we need something of a substance instead of just saying no. Um, and then we're always here. If people have questions and you know want to ask, um, that helps to move the needle instead of just saying no. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting the 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 three different groups, and I'm sure that you're you're encountering them quite often. I mean, you're working hand in hand with the hunters and fishermen, obviously. Um but then the the other two groups, uh, which honestly comprise probably the majority of the of the people in the United States, are are really the people that are kind of in the middle, or have never been introduced to hunting or fishing. They don't know why someone should do that. They don't know anything about um, they don't know anything about it, and they certainly don't know that 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 hunters and fishermen are financially responsible for what's very interesting to me is something that you just said, not only the species that are hunted, but often the species that are not hunted as well are funded um, through that tax. And, and a lot of people do not know that, do not understand that, do not see any benefit of it. And that's why I ask about the education programs, because it's hard for someone, for a hunter, somebody comes and, and accosts a hunter saying, why are you doing this? I don't understand it. Or you, you, you know, whatever. That's different than getting the information from scientists and from from the Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, occasionally, I think that that information would be better received through your organization than through someone standing at a trailhead screaming at one another that that hunting is actually good and 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 beneficial. And uh, you know, it, it it's just I'm always in favor of the of the education programs, but I think that it's a I think that it's a real success story. Um, and when you go to the, to the Bass Pro Shops, um, uh, the, the museum that they created, it's all kind of about that, um, that theme of hunters and anglers, uh, funding conservation over all these years and, and the success stories that have been, been, um, had through that. And that's a good segue into another success story that is, is in the recent news and that is the gray wolf being delisted, um, and that's that's through um, your agency as well. Is that correct? That is correct. So when a when a species is delisted, I know that like a long time ago when the American bald eagle was delisted, some people see that as as like a tragedy, where it's really a, the the greatest success story that you could have. And especially for the gray wolf that was almost extinct, reintroduced, and now 
has come off of the of the endangered species list that's a huge success story for the whole country it's a huge success story for wildlife it's a huge success story for your service it's it's a it's a big success story so i just kind of wonder like where where that news kind of sits with with people and how you feel about the 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 wolf because the wolf is a the controversial animal anyway you know but being off of the list is is interesting so like how's that sitting it, it depends on which one of those three groups <laughs> yeah right <laughs> so i mean i'm not sure if this uh podcast is live or not but you'll see in the back i have a bald eagle um taxidermy eagle yeah. and okay. if you look and the rest of my office i have other um um, taxidermy animals, but I'm very specific on what's in my office. And the animals that I have are animals that are recovered because it is, it's a success. The Endangered Species Act was created for species that are in peril, ones that are about to be extinct or going to be extinct um, in the foreseeable future. So that's when, you know, the U.S. government comes in to say, okay, what is the plan going forward now that this animal is, you know, in the hospital? Um, how do we get it out? Like that's that's the end goal. The end goal is not to keep them on the list. It's to show that we have recovered the species to the point where the populations are flourishing, flourishing where we no longer. I'm saying we, as in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service need to have it under our um, jurisdiction. Um, and when it comes off the list, it returns to state management. Mm. It's not yeah. just out there somewhere. It is now managed by the state. Um, and so, you know, these, for the, for, the, for the wolf, I mean, we first started trying to delist this um, back around 2007. Um, and have faced numerous court challenges. And along the way, the science has not changed. Hmm. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service continually states, you know, the population is biologically recovered. And you look at all the factors, the five factors that puts a species on the list. You look at those same five factors. Could, could, you, could you say what the five factors are that puts a species on the list? Yeah, so um, you're looking at what is their their habitat. So it's curtailment um, of their habitat. You look at what are the regulatory frameworks or assurances that are in place. You look to see if there is um, uh, for other man-made or man-made factors or other um, natural factors. You also look at uh, if there is like research or collection of the species that has happened that is um, having to impact their population numbers. And then we also have the tailment of the habitat, research, um, Population numbers. Uh, you're also looking at regulatory assurances, and then man-made and natural 
and natural factors. So those are like the, the five ones that you're looking at for it being listed or it coming off of the list. Um, and so we've reached the point of saying, okay, this is now biologically recovered um, and let's get it off the list. Let's return it to state management. So that is a success. I think there's others that see that having it on the list shows that the ESA is working. Mm. While really the ESA is shown to work when we can work together with landowners because more than half of our 1,600 um, federally listed species um, are on private lands. So we have to work with private landowners because that's where uh, those species habitat is. We have to work with organizations as well. We have to work with our state and federal um, and other federal agencies. So there's, there's a large collaboration and cooperation that, that must occur um, in order to reach this. And, you know, that's, the species was listed before um, under the, under, you know, years, decades ago. So this is, uh, this is truly a success story for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah, well, I, I think so. And so it's interesting though, because one of the questions I had about the wolf and, and other animals uh, is that you could have you could have a big rebound in a certain area, like around the Yellowstone area. You could have a, a lot of wolves, and then you could have another area, uh, say say around the Great Lakes, where maybe there are a lot of wolves, or maybe there aren't a lot of wolves, um, and certain other places where it's part of their native range, but they they haven't rebounded to the to the level of like around the Yellowstone range or whatever, but you're looking at the overall population saying that maybe they're overpopulated in some areas, underpopulated in others, but the overall numbers for the species in the United States is such that the pop, that the, that the population is sound, it's thriving, and that would tend to uh, get them off the list. And then it would go back to state management and a state that thought, well, we don't have enough. They're having a hard time repopulating this area. They may say that there's still no no hunting for that particular animal in a, in a certain state. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, that's interesting because that you know there's certain areas that have tremendous amounts of things for wolves to eat, and they are obviously doing very well in those areas. And other areas where maybe maybe they haven't quite filtered back into their to their you know, native range where they, where they once were. And, in right. those and yeah. And, and that's true. So when we're looking at um, our, the listed species, we have recovery plans and those recovery plans outline, what does it take to get a species? If it's endangered, what does it take to get it down listed to threatened? And then what does it take to get it to completely off the list? Um, and so those are, I mean, that's also our path forward. And that's also beneficial too. When we're working with partners of how do they make their investments um, in order to reach recovery? You know, if it's more land that the species needs, then that gives them insight. Okay, let's invest in um, more habitat yeah. and more range. Or if it's the population number, then let's look at captive breeding to help supplement the population. So under um, our recovery plans, it gives that guidance of, okay, 
this is the area that we're looking at for the range. And that's not necessarily the same thing as the historic range mm-hmm. um, because a lot has happened. Right. Human populations have, you know, increased a lot since, you know, the, since, you know, before we were probably here. So um, before we spread out across the U.S. So yeah. there's a lot that, that we look at and that is guided by our recovery plan to say, yes, the species is flourishing. Yeah. So what about, um, what about species in the ocean? Um, what does, what, what's your role, uh, in the service? Uh, is there, is there a, is there like a, a a boundary that, that you're responsible for or that you have, you, you know what I'm asking? Like, are you involved in all, uh, waters, all of the U S waters, fresh or salt water? No, so we're just the ones that are that are um, here within the within within the U.S. Not not the waters um, such as in the oceans that falls under NOAA um, under NOAA. Right. So um, we're like so it's funny. So you might have um, salmon. So if they're in the streams here within the U.S., then they're under our jurisdiction as soon as they go out to the ocean that same fish then falls under NOAA and then it comes back and it's back under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in a situation like that, that you have to work hand in hand with with NOAA to to get the science straight, I guess, to make sure that the decisions that you're making are are not conflicting with one another. Yeah, that's that's very true. We do we work collaboratively with with NOAA. Um, and there's joint rules that we work on too. So um, they also, um, um, for the for the Endangered Species Act, they also administer that as well as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah, uh, interesting because they're, they're you know just as you have you have animals that are that are threatened and and um, and endangered and then rebound greatly to to numbers that are seemingly historic it happens in the oceans as well with with fish like a goliath grouper and sharks are 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 there too so just kind of wondered where where that line was drawn i knew noaa was the agency that was responsible for that but i didn't know like how you worked hand in hand with them it's interesting that that salmon uh example is is perfect that's a perfect example of how as soon as that fish goes into the ocean it's it's really under noaa rather than fish and wildlife. Interesting. Um, so one of the things when we first started talking was that you uh, are self-admittedly a city girl. And uh, that's kind of um, an interesting thing too, because how are we um, or your agency focusing efforts on getting city folk, kids in particular, to be... Um, exposed to the outdoors are, are there programs for that yeah there, there are programs there's organizations that are out there um organizations that the fish and wildlife service is engaging with so the fish and wildlife service we have 568 national wildlife refuges and 101 of those are um in urban settings meaning that they are 25 miles or less than um, an area that has 250,000 people or more. Hmm. 
So we have designated those as urban national wildlife refuges. So it's really not that far to 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 go out to go out and enjoy the great outdoors. Um, you don't have to travel all the way to like Wyoming or Montana. <laughs> right. Um, and so when you're looking at our urban refuges, they're really they're they're set up a little bit differently and and when I say set up a little bit differently is that the success of these refuges depends on the community. And so we have to be proactive um, for people to come and engage with us um, or else if it doesn't fit kind of with, um, with the community, then it's hard for us to, I mean, cause we need volunteers to be able to, to work or, you know, how do we start to train the next generations um, and if it's not in a format or a template that works for the community, then it's hard to um, start to build those advocates um, and that interest in wildlife and the great outdoors. Um, and so for our urban areas, we do have a heavy focus on how do we engage with the communities in which we operate, and especially the surrounding communities. Um, we have outreach programs with um, the schools. Yeah. Um, and in some and in some districts, we provide um, a lot for the curriculum when it comes to that science piece and that outdoors piece, which is really phenomenal. You think about um, really we're able to provide things kind of real time because we're experiencing it, we're seeing it, and we can teach it. Um, there's other times where we have schools that. Um, like their fourth grade class or their third grade class comes to the refuge like like once a year. And some of them, um, we have them as frequently as um, a couple times each semester um, to teach them about the outdoors. So there's multiple ways that we're working and we're really, you know, always open to new ideas uh, because with 80% of the U.S. population living in urban settings, um, and we're and our goal is to make sure that um, the tradition of conservation continues. We've got to engage um, with the urban community, or um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're not we're not able to fulfill our mission. Well, I know it's a, it's that's one of the reasons why I uh, I asked that because you know it's a double edged sword. As more people move to the cities, fewer people are living in rural areas. Fewer people are farmers. These days you have mega farms instead of small family farms where, you know, you hunt. That's what you do on a family farm. You go out and you hunt and people were being introduced to the outdoors in much greater numbers. And it seems like unless you have a family member that is going to show you how to hunt or fish, the chances of getting introduced to it are pretty slim, really. And if people aren't doing it, then they really don't care about it and they certainly aren't buying licenses and they certainly aren't buying fishing equipment and therefore conservation falls to the bottom of anyone's list, whether it comes uh, on their list is to vote for something that, that uh, makes a difference or to, um, or, or to actually buy something to where a part of that goes back to conservation. A, a duck stamp is, I mean, the numbers on the duck stamp, what, how much money does that raise a year? It's, it's a lot. I know that, you know, offhand. 
Um, since since it started in 1934, um, we have it has brought in over six billion. Six billion dollars. Yes. That is that's amazing, and that and and a federal duck stamp. Most of the people listening will will know, but that goes. Uh, that's a part of your your hunting license, and that's a requirement for uh, for for being able to duck hunt. And that's a real success story too. You know the Wetlands Protection Act and and all of all of the money that goes into that uh, to protect the 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 wetlands and the ducks and making sure that we actually have some ducks and geese and and things like that. Because I think that if it weren't for that amount of funding you may have a shopping mall or an airport or something built across every wetland or wetland could have been filled or whatever, but that was a huge uh, conservation uh, success story as well to protect the, the wetlands and, and the, the duck stamp and the, all that money is, is a big part of that. Um, but uh, I'm glad to hear about the, outreach to the urban communities because without people being introduced into hunting and fishing without people understanding what it's about it just is not not a priority so uh that's that's really important um so we've talked about a lot of different things um i think that that uh it's it's really exciting that the access is a big part of of your agenda and uh, do you see that continuing as you move forward and trying to open more? Oh, most, most definitely. Um, and that's why we're here. We're here to, we're here to serve. So that means that we need to find those opportunities um, and continue on this trend as well as in the same thought is, you know, we've got to make sure that we're working with private landowners too. Um, and making sure that, you know, the decisions that we make, they're always going to be based on sound science, the rule of law, and a thing called common sense. And so it's working lands still must be, you know, working lands. Um, and how do we use the science to be able to balance those interests as well? So we're always working for looking for access. Um, and then when we're working in, you know, other areas as well, too, it's, how do we take care of the animals, but how do we also make sure that people can make a living off of their lands that they have? Yeah, the multi-use aspect you mentioned earlier, um, which is it's really important. But when you when you have all of these different things tugging on 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 each end of 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 something like a species that is having trouble or hunting rights or whatever, it, it is it's hard to balance all of that. And I guess it all comes down to what the science says. Uh, and, and that's, that's where you're basing most of your, um, or, or really all of your kind of decisions are, are based in, in science. Right. Right. Um, and when we do our evaluations, such as like if, uh, another federal agency comes to us and they need to, let's say, build a dam because, um, um, they need water or uh, utilities in that area. You know, we work with them. We look at, you know, what is the impact to the species there? If we see that there's something that could um, adversely impact that species, we provide alternatives, um, alternative measures or 
um, actions that they can take to, to minimize that impact. So um, that's why there's, it's, it's discussion, there's discussions that we have. It's an iterative process, knowing that there is multiple uses of the same resources, but we use the science to be able to um, come to that final conclusion. Interesting. Well, it's a big job. You seem to be doing an, an, an excellent job uh, with, with keeping all of these things in mind and keeping um, you know, the wildlife at front and center and all of the other things that are ancillary to that, um, they have to be considered as well. And so it seems like it seems like it's a much bigger job than it looks like uh, at first glance. I'm sure that when you get in there, you realize, wow, there are a lot of people and organizations and things tugging on every every decision that you make. But uh, but you seem to be doing a really good job with it. I thank you for that, and I thank you for keeping the access as a major priority because for me, access is the most important. It really is. Well, conservation of the species are, is the most important, but then having access to go and and even just see them, see them, hunt them, fish for them, you know, just to be able to access our public lands is is super important. So thank you for that. And thank you for spending this time with us. Um, is there anything you'd like to add uh, before we before we finish up? Uh, this President Trump Secretary Bernhardt has been instrumental in making sure that um, our public lands are open for the, for the American people. And part of getting the message out about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is exactly what we're doing here today. Um, and the legacy that I want to leave is um, one day, you know, if you ask a little boy or a little girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would love for them to say, hey, I want to be, you know, an engineer or maintenance worker or law enforcement or biologist over at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Everyone hears about the national parks. Everyone hears about museums and zoos, et cetera. But it's the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that is at the forefront when it comes to conservation of our wildlife and being able to use, um, being able to be here today um, and speak. Um, really helps to get the message out of what we're doing and allow us to be able to uh, make sure that we're reaching that next generation, that they have um, wildlife and, and lands that they can go and hunt and fish and enjoy like we're able to do today. Nice. And so if people are interested in uh, following along, getting more information, what are the places that you would point them? I know that you have a you have Twitter. I've, I've followed your Twitter. You're you're pretty pretty active on Twitter, and it, and you do a good job on it. Um, so <laughs> that might not be something that people would think that the that the director would would be uh, have a have a, a a pretty good Twitter feed, but you do. Yeah, and and that's that's the whole point of we have to figure out what are the methods of communication that works for the people. And if we're going to get our message out, then we've got to communicate that way. So, yes, um, I'm active on Twitter. Um, U.S. FWS director. Um, and then you can always visit us at www.fws.gov. Um, love to hear from anyone. And we're always we're always here. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Director Skipwith. And uh, I look forward to doing this again. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll do it again when there's some sort of pending issue that we can talk about. And maybe you can educate us on, uh, on what's going on. I'd love to have you back on the show again. That sounds fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Everybody go follow and get more information. And uh, we'll see you again next week with another amazing guest. All right. See you. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.